This is a Federal News Network podcast. Can nonprofit contractors under the Ability One program compete with one another on price as if they were regular contractors going after a solicitation? That's what the Court of Federal Claims was asked to rule on. The case got to the heart of what the Ability One program is all about. We get the details from Smith Pactor McWhorter attorney Joseph Petrillo. And Joe, first of all, give us the background on the Ability One program, the rules surrounding it, and how the whole thing generally operates. Sure. The Javits Wagner O'Day Act, or JWAD in government speak, set up a socioeconomic program to help employ people who are blind and severely disabled. And it did that by giving a contracting preference to nonprofits who use such people in more than 75% of the direct labor they provide. And this goes back many years. Many years. This program's been around for a very long time, and it's evolved over time, but it's been stable for, for some period now. It's a very large program, and actually it involves about $4 billion worth of goods and services sold to the United States government. They employ over 45,000 blind or severely disabled people in all 50 states, and you know it's, it has a huge amount of coverage. The contracting process, the process of awarding and pricing the contracts, proceeds under procedures established by Ability One in their regulations. So they have power to make this program work, the preferential program work through regulations. And by the way, where does Ability One live in the government? It's an independent agency of the federal government. Okay. Ability One establishes these regulations, as I've mentioned, and they are a federal agency. And, and as is relevant to this case, the pricing process is very different from what you have in an ordinary competitive procurement. First, the nonprofit is selected for the contract through some evaluation process of its technical and other capabilities. And after the selection is made, then price is established in a process of negotiation, including the government agency that's going to be awarding the contract and using the services or goods the nonprofit that's going to be performing the contract, and an outfit called Source America, who is another organization that administers this part of the program for Ability One. That's the process. So first you figure out who the awardee is, then you negotiate the price. But in this case, then, Ability One tried to do something completely different. Right. Apparently, around 2015, 2016, Congress started getting interested in the idea of having competition among these nonprofits in price as well as other features. And they asked the Section 898 panel, which was established under the National Defense Authorization Act of 2017, to study whether there should be price competition in JWAD procurements. And the Section 98 panel thought it might be a good idea to have a best value trade off as part of these procurements. So, Ability One did not change its regulations, but it set up a pilot program by issuing an interim policy, and it selected the facilities contract at Fort Meade for the pilot program. The current contractor for that facilities contractor was a JWAT entity called Melwood Horticultural Training Center, and they were not interested in competing on price, so they filed a bid protest at the Court of Federal Claims uh, when the procurement was announced. The Justice Department moved successfully to dismiss that case because it was premature. The procurement hadn't taken place. Uh, The procurement went forward after the court dismissed the case, and Melwood apparently did not get the award. And so they filed a second protest. They lost the competition, protested a second time, and the Court of Federal Claims now had to look at the main issue, which is, can the 
Ability One program be conducted with price competition in this context? We're speaking with Joseph Petrillo. He's a procurement attorney with Smith, Pactor, McWhorter. So this gets to the crux of the whole issue. What did the court decide in the second protest? The issue that Melwood raised was that the pilot program established by this interim policy conflicted with the statute and regulations. The JWAT statute said that these procurements have to be conducted under Ability One's regulations. And those regulations did not contemplate the type of price negotiation that was included in the pilot program. They, they were the old system of select the nonprofit first, then negotiate price, not having price competition among the nonprofits. The issue sounds technical, but it's important. The regulation process is one that involves notice by the agency of an intent to issue a regulation. There's then an, a comment period, and usually the regulation isn't effective until after the comments are considered agency explains what it's doing and why maybe changes the regulation and issues it formally. Ability One sidestepped all that by issuing an interim policy. And the court basically said, no, you can't do that. This is such a fundamental change. It has to be done through the regulatory process. So that procurement then is back to ground one. And the policy that Ability One was trying to field, what is the status of that then? How can they have a policy of competition, but there's no way to try it out? Well, there is a way that Ability One can proceed. The court suggested that Ability One probably has the right to change its regulations to adopt this type of a pilot program, but it has to go through the regulatory process, and that's going to take some time. The court, in the meanwhile, permanently enjoined Ability One from awarding the contract it had competed under the interim policy and it permanently enjoined them from awarding another contract under that interim policy for the Fort Meade facilities contract. I think there are some interesting policy issues involved in whether or not there should be such a price competition. On the one hand, you could see that perhaps having a price competition might lead to a more attractive price, and that might make the Ability One program uh, more interesting and more attractive to federal agencies. They might be inclined to put more contracts into it. On the other hand, the point here is to employ people who are blind and severely handicapped and presumably aren't going to be as productive as people who are differently abled. So to the extent that you're competing with price, the nonprofits may have an inducement to employ fewer of those blind and severely handicapped people in the performance of the contract. And, you know, these are difficult policies that need to be considered and weighed. Sure. And those people are often employed under different labor regulations and therefore don't always have to get paid minimum wage in many cases. And so if you have the agencies that they work for or the nonprofits that they work for competing on price, that could even depress wages for people that as a society we've decided we want to help. Yes, there are some really interesting and complicated policy issues here to try to figure out how to help the most people in the best way. Well, the ball is in Ability One's court at this point. If it really wants to go ahead with this system of price competition, it's got to go through the rulemaking first. Yes, that's what they would have to do to proceed. And, you know, Congress has been sort of thinking about this area, but they haven't really decided what to do. So um, they might weigh in at some point as well. Joseph Petrillo is a procurement attorney with Smith, Pactor, McWhorter. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama Administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. <laughs> Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision, that I have uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally 
was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. 
And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor, we call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.